Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is John Slaughter, and John is the group superintendent of the Southern Campaign of the American Revolution Parks. And John, that's quite a mouthful of a title, and welcome to the journal, and let's explain what your title entails. Thank you, Doctor. It is quite a title, and it barely fits on the business card. (laughs) What the group was established to do was to celebrate and commemorate the battles and skirmishes associated with the Southern Campaign in the American Revolution, specifically here in South Carolina. And those parks include Cowpens National Battlefield, Kings Mountain National Military Park, 96 National Historic Site, and the Overmountain Victory National Historic Trail. Well, if it includes other things, we have, we're up to now, what, 137, 147 battles and skirmishes in South Carolina? If you want to talk about all the different engagements, we've we've documented well over 300. But yes, about 136 to 137 that are recognized, let's say, in the history books. But those aren't really part of your domain. Oh, no, we don't want that. But you talk, you do talk about them. I do. It's it's one of the thrills is is being able to go to places like uh, Kettle Creek in Georgia or um, or to Musgrove Mill even at a state park and and talk about the connection of the Southern Campaign of the American Revolution, which is so important for us to do, so we don't lose the foundation that 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 is to American history. Yeah. John, there's another anniversary coming up on October the 7th. So Kings Mountain, depending upon who you look to as a military historian, may be the key battle of the revolution or one of the key battles of the American Revolution. Um, Sorry, Monmouth. The only place I might, only battle site I personally might consider more important would be Saratoga. Saratoga or Brandywine or... Yes, absolutely. The Battle of Kings Mountain was a turning point in the American Revolution, um, as uh, commended by Thomas Jefferson himself, who said it was the turn of the tide of success. Well, and actually, Lord Cornwallis, I'm sorry, not Cornwallis, Clinton, Sir Henry Clinton, who commanded British forces in North America. He was Cornwallis's boss. People often forget that, but but he was. Uh, Clinton wrote, that Kings Mountain was the first link in the chain of evils that followed in regular succession until they ended in the loss of America. Now, I would argue that it was, there were a few things that preceded that in South Carolina, starting with Huck's defeat in July. No matter how you, you look at it, Kings Mountain was a pivotal, a pivotal battle. It was, as, as were so many other battles in South Carolina. We look at the Battle of Utah Springs, and even though, you know, it's hard to say who actually walked away from that battle with a victory, you know, just the fact that the percentage of British that were killed or wounded at that battle was a turning point. And that's one of the things we really like to focus on in our part group is is that there's many turning points here in the South, and that all those turning points together is what points to freedom. And if we don't tell this larger story of the Southern Campaign, then we never really get past the individual sites. So what, what, what we're really talking about is a period from the fall of Charleston in 1780, spring of 1780, um, and then the battles that followed in succession after that, particularly beginning in July with the Battle of Huck's defeat, and there were almost a dozen after that before it gets to, to King's Mountain. Um, and almost all of these battles, except for Camden and Fishing Creek, involved militia. And they were really unorganized militia, which I know bothers some folks. Uh, but, you know, in the backcountry, folks like Lacey and uh, others assemble their bands when they defending their, their local area. And after that, they went home. Right. Even the, the story of Kings Mountain specifically, when you tell the story of the Overmountain men, the, many of these men that traveled from uh, what's now Tennessee, uh, most of them, they came and fought what 
Clinton and Jefferson both called a turning point in the American Revolution and left. And most of them never came back together again to fight as an army. The -the over-the-mountain men get a lot of press. They're very romantic uh, about their challenging, being challenged by uh, the good major, Ferguson, the British uh, commander, and responding. But they weren't the only group at King's Mountain. You had Virginians, North Carolinians, South Carolinians, and and Georgians. So it really was the Southern militia uh, against uh, the Army of Occupation. It really was, and and you're absolutely right that the Overmountain Men, um, I think, has uh, traditionally been associated with those that came from the Watauga settlement north in what is now Tennessee. But really, when I think of the Overmountain Men, I think of I think of all those men and all those militia that came out of the hills of. Um, the you know what what's now the Asheville Mountains, and then coming also you know through the valleys and out of the hills of of uh, Georgia and um, North Carolina up near the Concord area, and and some of those some of those men that are um, the forgotten heroes, so to say, of of Kings Mountain, and really the backcountry engagements that were happening well before and long after the Battle of Kings Mountain. I mentioned a few minutes ago the challenge thrown down, or it was really the insult uh, by Ferguson to the over-the-mountain men. You want to tell me about that? Sure. The 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 threat to the over-mountain men of of sending his troops over over the mountain and into their farms and their fields to to burn their farms and lay waste to their lives. You know, bringing the fire and the sword. Uh, is is really uh, very poetic and I think very um, enticing to tell that story. Yet um, it's one of those things that I think we, you know, we, we need to challenge and say, you know, where did that really come from? Is there a possibility there's a little propaganda behind that? Well, the backcountry was good about propaganda, uh, starting with, with Huck's defeat uh, or actually starting with the Battle of the Waxhaws and how— uh, the backcountry relayed the massacre at the Waxhaws of American soldiers. Um, and the British complained about it as propaganda. It was pretty gruesome, but every time it was told, it got worse. Cer- certainly a great fish story in many cases. Um, and, and yes, it's, it, was, it was one of the things that the militia and the patriots in the backcountry did very, very well to spread it up the troops and bring men that weren't necessarily inclined to travel long distances to fight against organized armies to do just that and to give them that fortitude and that ability to do so sometimes takes a little bit of storytelling. Well, it, it, obvi- it obviously worked. There are, uh, I know in researching partisans and redcoats, they came across wonderful, wonderful stories from uh, a woman threatening saying she was a rebel and her brothers were a rebel and her dog was a rebel and if her husband didn't become a rebel, he might as well go. (laughs) So to me, that was one of the fascinating points of studying the revolution in the backcountry. It really involved everybody, men, women, children. And I say children because look how young the Jackson boys were. Absolutely. And even the clergy. You know, the, the way that the clergy was used to, to really be these places of um, enticement and encouragement to take this idea of freedom and independence forward. And I've got a couple of good quotes on that. And I, I know you, you're familiar with uh, the prayer of John Miller, the Presbyterian elder, which was used in Presbyterian churches in the greater Catawba River Valley, we talked, that runs from Camden all the way up to Salisbury, which was just sort of a natural highway. It really was. It was. It was where many engagements and many um, encounters between the British and and the backcountry patriots occurred. Yeah. Well, this is a documented prayer used by some Presbyterian churches in the backcountry. Good Lord, our God, who art in heaven, we have reason to thank thee for the many favors received at thy hands, the many battles that have won 
There is one great and glorious battle at King's Mountain, where we killed the great General Ferguson and took his whole army, and the great battles of Ramsar's and Williamson's, and the ever-memorable and glorious battle of the Calpins, where we made the proud General Tarleton run down the road helter-skelter. And good Lord, if you had not suffered the cruel Tories to burn Billy Hill's iron works, we'd not have asked any more favors at thy hand. Amen. Amen. <laughs> so let's just kind of deconstruct that and just let our listeners know what those different engagements were. Um, of course, he starts off with King's Mountain, but then he talks about the Battle of Ramsar's Mill. Sure, the Battle of Ramsar's Mill, which was so vitally important, and yet a small a smaller scale um, battle that uh, that really helped continue the idea that as a less than organized army, leveraging the militia and leveraging this spirit, this patriot spirit that was brewing in the back country mm-hmm. to, um, to successfully engage the greatest army in the, in the world was, um, was something that, that just carried forward. It was, it was the thread and the spirit that I believe was so much of, of why the South was so important. You look at the Battle of Kings Mountain from the time of the Battle of Kings Mountain one year, less than one year and one month, one year and 12 days, I think it is, to the surrender at Yorktown. Lord Cornwallis, his army was chewed up in the primarily in South Carolina. There are battles in North Carolina as well. But when Cornwallis marched through North Carolina chasing General Green and got back to the coast, he was asked by a friend, was he going to go back to South Carolina? And he said something to the effect, I've had enough adventures there. <laughs> he was heading north to Virginia and surrender. He didn't know surrender at the time, but he, that's where he was headed with, a, with an army that had, was severely depleted. Yes, and in so many cases, um, as soon as he came into the interior, um, this side really of, of Camden, the ability to leverage the coastal batteries and the ability to leverage the coastal access to the Navy and, and resupplies really became his Achilles heel. And, uh, and ultimately, I believe, was, was part of what did in the, the British forces. Well, folks seem to forget that with the fall of Charleston in the spring of 1780, uh, all the other American posts and outposts in the, in the state surrendered. And it was claimed back home in London, the greatest victory of the, of the revolution, the crown jewel of the empire, South Carolina, is now back in in the empire, and things seemed to be swimmingly. Americans who had been captured at Charleston, over 5,000 men in uniform, were paroled. And do you want to explain to our listeners what paroled meant in the 18th century? Sure. This idea of being paroled and and handed a... uh a piece of paper that you had signed that said you would not take up arms against the king and you would not fight against the king, that you could basically go back to your life and uh, perform the functions that you were performing before any military engagement uh, with, uh, with the caveat that if you were to engage in any military activities in any other party besides the king, that you would be held accountable for that. Treason. 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 And so this was kind of normal in the 18th century to do that. Um, these men were all given their parole, and then just before he leaves Charleston, what does Sir Henry Clinton do? He revokes the paroles. Not only revokes the paroles, but he's saying, okay, John Slaughter, you may have been paroled, but I'm going to say you've got to join the Loyalist militia and fight your neighbors. Right. And that became, I think that became one of the big drivers um, for, for much of the backcountry at that point in time. We look at, at uh, Pickens and we look at so many others that um, were basically laughed. They laughed in the face of Sir Henry Clinton and said, you know, come and try us. If yeah. that's the way it's going to be, come and try us. Yeah. And, and actually, Billy Hill's Ironworks that I mentioned in that prayer, there was a British raiding party looking for the ironworks because in what's now York County, uh, we, were, we did have ironworks producing arms for the American cause. And so, yes, they were looking for Billy Hill's Ironworks, and they did burn them down. <laughs> but that's what stirred up the backcountry. That and the, the way that the British treated the American population. 
Now, it's one of those things that's so hard to believe in the 21st century. The English, their view was if you were not from England, regardless of whether you were a peasant or what have you, you were a colonial, you were beneath contempt. There was no way you could be an equal. And so they treated them that way. And it just so happened in South Carolina, there were not just English settlers who had done pretty well, but you had in the backcountry all those Scots-Irish. And to English, they were not very nice folks. They, they considered them completely beneath contempt. And those Scots-Irish hated the English. So you've got to mix in ethnic conflict and also the fact that the Scots-Irish were Presbyterians and there was kind of a standing order. If you see a Presbyterian meeting house, burn it, burn it down. It's a, it's a house of sedition. Um, it really was. The, this, this idea, this, this difference between what the British viewed as humanity and, and what the Scot-Irish viewed as humanity and the most basic rights, human rights, were two completely different views. And I think that's one of those things that really for us today carries so far forward, and even, even into present day. Um, you know, what is, who are us? Who is the U.S.? And, and why? Why do, we, why, do we need the, why do we feel the need to have these rights and these connections and these basic elements of, of who we are? And I believe that the Scot-Irish uh, of the backcountry were the best at really being able to share that notion, not just with the British at that time, but really with the entire world to be able to say, here's why, and here's why you should get behind our idea of what freedom really is as well. And the men who fought at King's Mountain, you've got Scots-Irish, you've got Highland Scots, you've got Germans, African-Americans, which often surprises folks. And they were not enslaved. They were, there were a number of free persons of color who were fighting. So you've got a whole cross-section of the heterogeneous population of the backcountry. Um, I used to say, looking at 18th century South Carolina, it was multicultural before that term became cool. But it was the Scots-Irish, really, if you look at the leaders, whether it's Lacey or, or the others, who were the military leaders. Absolutely. The, these, these men that were leaders of men and leaders of families, um, you know, many of these families were many of these men that came to fight at the Battle of Kings Mountain and, and many, many of the battles and skirmishes throughout uh, South Carolina and the Appalachians were fighting as, as brothers, literally as brothers and as cousins and as uh, friends. And, and it, it, was, it was pretty uh, incredible to see how each and every one of these groups, whether it was Lacey or whether it was Campbell or whether it was Hambright, that many of the men that they brought with them were not just neighbors, but they were also family members. Right. Uh... John, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with John Slaughter of the National Park Service, and we're talking about the revolution in the backcountry, particularly the upcoming anniversary of the momentous battle at Kings Mountain. Let, we can time travel on radio, John. Let's move from the 18th century, although I want to go back there, but let's talk about what's going to happen uh, on October the 7th at Kings Mountain to celebrate the anniversary. Well, here in just a few days, uh, on October 7th in 2019, we're going to be celebrating the 239th anniversary and commemorating that victory at the Battle of Kings Mountain, the victory that really turned the tide of success in favor of the Patriots in the South. So how are you going to celebrate it? We always have a great turnout of local and national uh, sons of the American Revolution and daughters of the American Revolution uh, that come and, and, and lay wreaths at the um, monument on top of the, the mountain. But also, we usually will have a keynote speaker. And this year, we have uh, Van Hip, who is going to come speak with us. And, and Van is a, is a former uh, assistant secretary of the Army and uh, just an incredible, incredible um, patriot and... and um, family connections to the Southern campaign of the American Revolution. Well, the monument itself on the top of the mountain has been there quite a while. Americans recognized that a while back, 
over a century ago. Right. Even um, Herbert Hoover, you know, came at the anniversary of of the battle and and brought with him about ten thousand. Some people will say up to seventeen thousand people to commemorate uh, this Patriot victory at the Battle of Kings Mountain. But it is uh, the second oldest marker uh, commemorating the American Revolution is actually at Kings Mountain, the Chronicle marker. It's only second to uh, the marker at, uh, at Lexington. Now, I've been to Kings Mountain many times. Uh, I have brought groups and climbed the mountain. It's easier for us today than it was <laughs> in 1780. And on the way up, there is a cairn which is a Scottish pile of rocks in honor of Major Ferguson, who was the commander of British troops at at Kings Mountain. And I know it's against the law, or at least against Park Service, to um, throw a rock at Ferguson's cairn, but it happens. It does happen, and I I certainly hope it's not against the law because I encourage it. It's one of those things that when I see a uh, a young man or a young woman and they're standing there and they're reading it and they're asking that question, why are these rocks here, you know, to to help them find this tangible connection to that same patriot spirit and being able to toss their rock onto that pile to keep that pile there. And ultimately, this idea of keeping Ferguson and what he was fighting for buried under those rocks is so important. The first time I led a group to Kings Mountain, this is probably before you were born, uh, University of South Carolina, and we were on the bus, we were talking about this, and two older women at the back of the bus said, we used to go there with our grandparents, and they had been raised in York County in a small country church, and their grandparents every year took them to Kings Mountain to throw rocks at the cairn. And the women said, their grandparents said, their grandparents had brought them. So this was something that started right after the revolution and continued into the 20th century. And, of course, it's still going on today. It certainly is a tradition, and it's part of, I believe, the heritage. I'm just thankful that we're not continuing the the tradition of, of what was originally done at that grave site right after the battle. What happened, folks, is that uh, Ferguson was killed. His body was stripped, and then in the ultimate insult, the backcountry men urinated on Ferguson's corpse. I think it's just it's so important that we do um, allow ourselves and give our, give ourselves permission as a nation um, to be able to tell the parts of our history that aren't that wonderful, and even the parts of who we are as Americans. You know, this was as you point out in your book, this was brutal. These, these fights were bloody, and they were hand-to-hand, and, and some of them, well, let's just face it, in today's vernacular, were not very nice. Well, it really started with the massacre at the Waxhaws, and it was almost a descending cycle of violence and, and retribution. And the Battle at the Waxhaws, really the massacre at the Waxhaws after the fall of Charleston, a group of Continentals was coming into South Carolina. They thought to reinforce the garrison at Charleston. Then they found out that Charleston had surrendered, so they started marching back. They were overtaken by Bannister Tarleton and his British Legion. They tried to surrender, and they were hacked to death, literally hacked to death with cavalry sabers and bayonets. The Waxhaw's Presbyterian Church served as the hospital the clergy associated with that church spread the word. Andrew Jackson's mother was nursing wounded and dying soldiers after the Battle of the Waxhaws. And the treatment of the enemy after that, it was, it was rough. After, the, after Huck's defeat, there's descriptions. They just talk about corpses lying in the woods because the British who tried to escape, they were all hunted down and killed. We saw it time and time again at Kings Mountain. If it was a cow, cow pens, um, you know, give them uh, Tarleton's quarter. You know, it's, it was it, there was a call. There was a you know there was a rallying call, and in, um, in many cases, 
as to uh, the brutality. And, and I think in some cases, the, the sense that um, it was okay. It, it didn't, it was okay to be as brutal as possible. It was, we're changing the way we do business because um, they did it to us first. Right. When you look at what happened to Andrew Jackson and his brother, a story that is not apocryphal, it really did happen. Young Andrew Jackson and his brother Robert were members of William Davies' band. Davies was a partisan leader from South Carolina. He later moved to North Carolina, but he operated across the Carolinas. And the two brothers were captured, and an English officer ordered Andrew Jackson to shine his boots. Jackson, who was a scrawny little teenager, sort of snapped his heels together and, sir, I'm a prisoner of war. I demand that you treat me as such. Well, this was totally unacceptable behavior for this little scraggly kid from the backcountry to stand up and insult an English gentleman who pulled his cavalry saber and took a swipe at Jackson. Jackson threw up his arm. The cut went to the bone, and he carried the scar and the hatred for the English to his grave. Needless to say, when he was president, he had, didn't care about Anglo-American relations very much. But his brother, the same order was given. He gave the same answer that, his, that Andy had given, but he was not quick enough, and he was clipped in the head with the cavalry saber, and he died of gangrene about three weeks later. So, and it, it's it's an incredible story. It it really is one of the one of the so many. I can only imagine sometimes when I try to look back and read between the lines of some of these stories and and who these men and who these women were um, that were that were truly courageous at that point in history. And I think that's really what it kind of comes down to. Is it comes down to the courage, the courage to be able to stand up and and do things that are extraordinary. Um, beyond what you ever thought you might be able to accomplish. Well, one of my favorite stories is Jane Black Thomas, and she's involved with two of your sites, with Starfort and Spartanburg District. Her husband was commander of the Spartan Regiment, and he was captured, and he was in prison at 96. And in those days, there were prisoners, but if you got sick, the word went out. Somebody had come down and take care of him because the British weren't going to do that. So Mrs. Thomas goes down, and she hears some English officers' wives talking about their husbands getting ready for a raid. They're going to try to ambush the Spartan regiment. Well, this woman who was over 60, which at the time was old. She was old. And since I'm over 60, I don't mind saying that. She steals a horse rides bareback through a hundred miles of enemy-occupied territory to say that the British were coming and the Spartan regiment defeated the British, ambushed in the first battle of Cedar Springs. Now, this woman really did something heroic, saying the British are coming. And, you know, I don't want to denigrate Paul Revere. He made great teapots. But all he did was ride partway down a paved turnpike and didn't even finish his mission. And yet everybody talks about the midnight ride of Paul Revere. What about the midnight ride of Jane Black Thomas? And by the way, it was during darkness. I mean, it was an incredible feat. So young boys, old women, men of normal military age, the revolution of the backcountry really did encompass everybody. It really did on so many different fronts, whether those are the patriotic fronts or whether those are the political fronts. And, and it's, it's the story of the Southern Campaign of the American Revolution. And this is why I believe it's just so imperative that we get this out, especially with this anniversary of our, the 250th of our nation coming up in just a few short years, that we really help folks understand the significance of the Southern Campaign on so many fronts in developing our nation, both good and bad, whether that's whether that's the 
the victory, the Patriot victory in the South or the the relocation and, and disenfranchisement of the Native Americans at the time. It's just there's so it's such a broad scope of history and so integral to who we've become as a nation that if we don't take time to go back and learn about it and put it in context and learn about who we were as a people at that time and who we were trying to become and how that's now leading us to who we hope to be some someday in the future. That's that's what makes the American Revolution and specifically the Southern Campaign relevant to today's Americans. Because you and I, I think, get it. And I think many of the folks that have been commemorating these sites, they they understand it for these reasons, because this is their site and, and this is where maybe their heritage is and where their ancestor fought. But for this to be relevant another 150 or 250 years from now, we really have to help that first generation American understand why this was important. That person that's waiting to take the oath of citizenship, that that their connection to America and this part of our history and how our warfighter heritage has made us what we are is just as important to them as it is to the 10th generation American that who can trace their ancestry to the Mayflower. Absolutely. Now, in terms of visitors, let's talk about, I want to come to see Kings Mountain. How do you tell this story at the Visitor Center? Well, we have some amazing rangers in the National Park Service, and we have incredible rangers at Kings Mountain National Military Park, as well as all our other Southern Campaign Park sites. But really... What we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about it on a couple of different fronts. We're going to talk about what was happening in the backcountry. We're going to talk about what was what was going on in the Southern Campaign. What was the what was the mentality and the spirit of those that were fighting for freedom at, at that particular time, and 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 why we were dejected and down, and 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 really there was a sense of maybe maybe we it all is lost. And then after this battle and this victory at Kings Mountain, how that changed everything and it changed the story and the trajectory of where we were going as a nation. And one of the ways we're going to do that, and in a more popular way nowadays, we had interpretation where you would come in, we would tell you a story, and you would walk away with kind of this idea that we presented to you. And then we had, we moved to what's called facilitated dialogue, where you would come in and we would we would kind of facilitate some some commentary back and forth. And now we're even taking that a little bit farther in what we call audience-centered engagement, where our rangers are really guides. They're guides to give you some questions and give you some insights and then elicit conversation and response from from the folks that are engaged in the conversation or in the place to talk about what it means and what happened. And it's really great because we get to hear different views and we also get to hear different understandings of history, different interpretations and perceptions of history. And then our job is really to kind of bring it back together and say, here's where, here's what it really means and here's what it meant then. But by far, my favorite, my favorite thing to do is to engage the reenactors. Because when you get these people that are doing first-person interpretation and you have somebody standing there that's presenting themselves as one of the overmountain men or one of the, the militia from Georgia or one of the uh, British um, militia and speaking in first person, it, it gives you a sense of being there. And then when you lay overlay that with standing on the site where the history happened, that starts to make it real. And the kids... They get that. We can talk about all these ideas of patriotism. We can talk about all these ideas of freedom. But when you're standing in the place and you're a fourth grader and you've got somebody that's dressed in 18th century clothing and they're showing you how a musket would be fired or they're showing you how to cook over a fire, that really brings it home for them. And that's what I love that we get to do on these commemorative events, especially like the weekend of the Battle of Kings Mountain. John, we need to pause a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with John Slaughter of the National Park Service, and we're talking about specifically the Battle of Kings Mountain, but also more broadly about the American Revolution in South Carolina. John, the road to Kings Mountain, you mentioned the over-the-mountain men, and this 
is commemorated every year with an annual march, correct? It is. We, um, we have a group, a partner group that we work with called the Overmountain Victory Trail Association. And uh, they begin the march, actually they begin before the anniversary of the march, going and bringing um, student groups to places like the Abingdon Muster Grounds in Abington, Virginia, which is one of the first muster grounds associated with this group of, of men that, that traveled 270 miles um, for this battle. And then uh, the events that happen at Sycamore Shoals and the mustering at Sycamore Shoals and the crossing of the Watauga. And all of these get reenacted. And, and, and the National Park Service, through the Overmountain Victory National Historic Trail, which has been around a little over 40 years, to commemorate those men's march to the Battle of Kings Mountain is really the convergence of two of my national parks. And that trail comes from Abingdon, Virginia, and Elkin, North Carolina, and it meets up in Morganton, North Carolina, where they would have met at Quaker Meadows, where the two different uh, arms of, of the Patriot Militia Army would have come together at Quaker Meadows. And then they march from there down through Rutherfordton and ultimately through what is now Chesney and, and stayed overnight even at Cowpens National Battlefield um, the night before Kings Mountain and then go on to battle at Kings Mountain on October 7th. So over the course of basically three weeks, men and women are reenacting this march all the way down, um, walking it uh, most of the way. That's a good segue into talking about the battle. The over-the-mountain men camp at the cow pens, but they are also meeting up with militia from almost everywhere. Let's talk about how they decided to fight the battle. Ferguson has presented them with a golden opportunity. Here is a thousand-man force part of Cornwallis's army, a very important part, which has been marauding through the backcountry en route to meet up with uh, Cornwallis in Charlotte. But he stops short at Kings Mountain, and Kings Mountain, as we know, is not a mountain. It's just a big rock, uh, which is important. You can't dig into a rock for cover. And he gets word that the militia are trailing him, and they have. He's been followed on his march. And so he decides to camp at King's Mountain. But all these backcountry boys are now meeting up at the Cowpens. And I'll let you take the story from there. Yeah, it really was quite spectacular that they came to the Cowpens, uh, this place that that seemed to be a place familiar to them, a place that uh, they would have known that they were somewhat safe and, and, and stay there. Um, with the sheer numbers that they had and the numbers on horseback. Um, basically, all of these men were on horseback. To, to have this place where they could, could then slaughter some beef and, and um, be able to be well-nourished for a battle that they knew was coming. If we, if we step back just a couple of days earlier, they were still trying to figure out where Patrick Ferguson was. They thought he was going to 96 because that's what they had been told. And so they were getting ready to head to 96, and they had expected to engage him at Gilberttown, just near present-day Rutherfordton, and they got there and he was gone. And that's when they found out that ultimately he was not heading to 96, that he was heading to, to Charlotte. And so that's why they turned ultimately and came to Cowpens and rested that night at Cowpens. How did they decide who? There was no real commander at Kings Mountain. That's one of the reasons I believe that uh, that this battle took the shape that it did. With many commanders, you know, um, Campbell told told folks in Severe also, you know, be your own commander, and we're going to we're going to fight this battle as as an army of commanders. And that's how they fought it. They fought it tree to tree and rock to rock and, you know, a number of repulsions where they ultimately surrounded the mountain and made two or three attempts to charge the mountain to be repulsed back a number of times. But between Campbell and Severe and McDowell from, you know, from up in, up in the what's present-day Morganton area and Winston and Hawthorne and uh, Chronicle and Lacey and then the big guy, Benjamin Cleveland, um, from, from up there near Elkin, 
um, and then uh, Colonel Williams and, and, uh, and Shelby, all of these men took on these roles of commander. And they each, they each fought with their group from an individual point on that mountain and up this mountain. In, in terms of military history, and I've been with the folks out at the command and general staff college at Fort Leavenworth, that always seems to amaze them because the Army likes to have one, one person in charge. But they just sort of, this is the mountain, and this is going to be your area, and this is going to be your area. And they all agreed to that, and then they attacked in unison. Well, they knew they had them surrounded, and they knew there was enough of them that they could win this. And what was the weather like? So the weather had been rainy. It had been um, cold. Um, some of the marching as they came over Yellow Mountain Gap, it even says that there was snow um, shoe mouth deep. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't pleasant weather. However, um, right before the battle, everything subsided. And it really helped, we believe, the militia um, because the leaves then, you know, again, this is, this is fall. The leaves that are fresh leaves that are falling are um, not crackling as hard. There's a little bit more line of sight. You still have a little bit of leaves on the tree, so you have um, this ability for camouflage a little bit better. But it really allowed these men to move as close as they did to an army sitting on a on a hilltop um, and be able to ultimately surround this this entire army. How true in terms of terrain and vegetation is Kings Mountain Park today to what it was 238 years ago? Oh, it's it's a completely different terrain, but it's but it's we're working towards um, uh, restoring that terrain. We've got some incredible programs. We've got a fire management program, and one of our guys, Alex Scrunch, he's he's just he's incredible at, at at using fire and mechanical means to try to um, make the landscape look and be um, more of what it was right. at, at that particular time. All right. Describe for our listeners what it what it really was. So it would have been trees. It would have been a number of hardwood trees and a lot of. Um, a lot of uh, hickories and, and some American chestnuts even, you know, that would have been there. These big, solid trees that these men could hide behind and stand behind and poke their head out and shoot with a rifle, you know, um, up these hills, you know, at, the, at, at these same, at these men, these militia that were firing down with military muskets, you know, and many of their shots just going way over the head of the, of the uh, militia, the Patriot militia, because they were firing downhill. Yeah, the musket... Versus the rifle is an important part of the story. Uh, the irony here, of course, is that Patrick Ferguson had designed a rifle for the British Army, and they wouldn't accept it because that's not a gentlemanly way to to fight. So his thousand men were all armed with muskets, uh, and firing downhill, you tend to fire high. Now, the men from Tennessee and Kentucky and the Carolinas, they fire uphill with a rifle. Their aim is true, and that's a big part of the story. Oh, it's a huge part of the story. It's one of the one of the parts of the story I think that that makes it significant, and it and it kind of um, romanticizes this idea of the American long rifle, and um, you know what these what these men were able to do. You got to think these these rifles that they were carrying these were their livelihood. This is where their subsistence. This is how they you know fed their families. And so they were a really good shot with these rifles. And the militia that were on the mountain for the British, they're firing your basic brown bess, you know, type of, uh, uh, of musket that's loose fitting. The ball, some of them, you know, there's a, there was a lot of balls that were found on the mountain that, that were never fired because as they're pointing down the mountain, the, the <laughs> shot could roll right out of the end of the barrel. And, uh, and you're absolutely right. Their ability to hit what they were aiming at, naturally you're going to shoot high aiming downhill anyway. But then you add the inaccuracy of a musket, which is a smooth bore, versus a rifled barrel, which is very tight, and a rifled, you know, being able to get the accuracy out of that. You're Even though you can load this musket probably three to four times faster if the rifle was true and the musket was not, that doesn't really do you a whole lot of good. Said, um, yeah. So... Early morning, what time do the rebels, and that's what the British called us, 
launched their attack. Uh, about three o'clock is, is when the battle is, is completed. The battle probably took about uh, an hour and a half or so, give or take. Um, and, and ultimately, the battle was over by three o'clock in the afternoon. The first time that the, the British were aware that something was going on, there obviously was confusion at the top. Ferguson was so sure of what, he, what was going on, he had his girlfriends with him. Oh, he did. The Virginias. Yes, the Virginias. And, um, you know, and he actually, one of the Virginias left, and she, you know, she was, she was the one that she headed down the hill, and, and uh, they were able to figure out who was Ferguson based on what he was wearing by, by the information that she um, gave them. And he also was riding a white horse, right? He was, and he uh, he was very uh, brazen, very arrogant. He was very sure of of his uh, militia's capability. He had a very capable militia. It wasn't that you know we had all these men that were you know just fired up, ready to fight for freedom, you know, going up against a bunch of other militia that had no training. The, his militia were probably the best trained militia potentially in the nation at that time. They were just trained in the wrong form of combat. And they were fighting because they, they knew if they lost, that given the nature of, of warfare in the back country, they were in deep trouble. The nature of warfare and the nature of family politics. In fact, there, there are several accounts, and I've heard you and your, your rangers talk about, a backcountry South Carolinian is coming up the hill and his brother-in-law asked for assistance, and he gets a reply of, turn to your Tory friends. Right. And he leaves his, his brother-in-law dying there on the, on the mountain. Right. And there's even, there's even accounts, uh, I believe, at Ramsers Mill of um, a brother going to kill, specifically to kill his brother who was fighting uh, for the British at the time. Well, it was quite a day, so to speak. Uh, but things did not end there. It was a 1,000 British casualties. We need to explain to folks that was not all killed, but that's killed, wounded, and captured. and captured. That is a huge portion of Cornwallis's army. And what happened to the prisoners after the battle? It, it really was a huge portion. You, you know, I, when I, when I kind of try to sum up the Southern campaign in you know, just a few sentences, Cornwallis was the main body. He lost his left arm at the Battle of Kings Mountain. He lost his right arm at Cowpens. And um, really, to lose that many men, there's some logistics associated with moving those that many prisoners because this idea of parole had changed, as we discussed earlier. And so it was more likely that they were going to be taken to camps or they were going to try to recruit them to fight now for the other side. Um, or ultimately, as in the case of, um, of Kings Mountain at uh, Bigger Staff's field, uh, the decision to start hanging them, many of the prisoners. And ultimately they got through, I believe, about nine before um, they, were, they were stopped and, um, and I guess it was that was enough to prove the point, but it also sent a message. It sent a clear message across the the backcountry that if you're going to fight for the British, you're going to pay a price, not just on the battlefield, but we're going to hold you accountable for what we believe are wrongs against humanity and wrongs against this patriot movement. Well, because uh, the British did not treat American prisoners very, very kindly either, um, and. Cornwallis ordered many hung, saying they had violated parole. He just strung them up. Um, so it was a bloody, nasty— It's a brutal time. Very, very brutal time. Um, does that shock some of your visitors? I think it, um, it shocks a lot of people. There's a lot of things about the American Revolution, I think, that are, that are shocking. I mean, the American Revolution was shocking in its own right. It was, it was a shock to the world that um, that this upstart of a nation would would have the audacity to do the things that it did, um, that it would align itself with the partners that it aligned itself with. So I think um, yes, and it's it's that's one of our challenges is finding that line. 
you know, find that line that 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 challenges people and their and their preconceived notions about what the American Revolution was, and specifically about the Southern campaign of the American Revolution. Because frankly, most people that come to our sites, it's about twenty percent that understand it and they get it and they're there to expand their knowledge. But the other 80% really has no idea that the American Revolution yeah. was even fought in the South. Yeah. Well, yes, this was where the revolution was won. Right here in our backyards. Absolutely. John, any last words before we sign off? I'm just really excited. I hope America gets very excited about the idea of the 250th coming up and that uh, we take the time to invest, reinvest in our history and in these places that matter so much to being able to preserve this history for future generations. John Slaughter, Group Superintendent for the Southern Campaign of the American Revolution Parks, thanks so much for being with us again on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. It's always good to have John Slaughter on the program to talk about the American Revolution, whether we're talking about Star Fort at 96, or Cowpens, or in this case, Kings Mountain. The way he expressed what the Park Service endeavors to do at Kings Mountain is to present to the visiting public the story of the founding of our nation why individuals, and in the case of the revolution in the backcountry, men, women, and yes, even children were involved in the fight for American freedom. The importance of Kings Mountain has been recognized historically, but in the upcoming celebration of our nation's 250th anniversary, the Department of the Interior has selected what they call five signature sites that will be highlighted above others, places like Independence Hall, Yorktown, and here in South Carolina, Kings Mountain. I think that says it all. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.